Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 146, verses 1 through 10, which can be found on page 148 in a few Bibles or 980 in a large print. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for providing for us what we need. We thank you that you have not left us um, to our own devices, even though so many times that's the first place we run. I pray that we would, you would help us to uh, turn to you in everything. that we would start not with ourselves, but with what you have already provided. That we would begin and end with your grace. Lord, we thank you for the Bible you've given to us, and we pray that this morning you would help us to hear it fresh for today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 146, verses 1 through 10. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Our New Testament lesson from Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. We found on page 838 in your pew Bibles, or 1605 in large print. tells us that soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from another town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our sermon text this morning from 1 Peter is one of those bittersweet Sundays. And this is the final uh, section from 1 Peter. So on the one hand, we are uh, concluding this part. On the other hand, next week we begin something new. Uh, I'm actually very excited about it. But we're not there yet. I'll tell you about that next week. For this week, uh, we have a passage, and you notice in the bulletin that it is titled Strong, Firm, and Steadfast. And uh, those are words that actually come straight from this passage. And those are words that we hear those and we say, yes, I would like that. Don't we? I would like to be strong. I want to be firm. I want to be steadfast. I don't want to be, you know, like James talks about, the one who's double-minded and like the waves rolling and blown and tossed. I want to be like that. I want to be firm. I want to be strong. I want to be able to stand up against anything and anyone who gets in my way. Oh, but see, that's where the problem is. Because that's usually how we hear these words. Is What it means to be strong and firm and steadfast is to have your position staked out and then never let anyone cross you. Here's the thing. That's not what Peter's talking about. So let's hear this together and hear what it is that it means to be strong, firm, and steadfast in Jesus. Here we go. We're actually starting uh, with verse 7. I'll come back and pick up verse 6 later. Uh, we ended last time. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you, who are in Christ. And so the letter ends. And we will actually begin with the ending. The way that Paul is reminding these Christians that he's writing to, who's writing to them, where they are, and what's going on. And he says, um, not only is it him and Silas that are writing, but he says, she who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. So does my son, Mark. In other words, Peter is not writing by himself. There are others with him. There is Silas, there's Mark, and there's also she who's in Babylon. Who's the one who's in Babylon? Well, probably nobody at this point, because at this point in history, Babylon's been destroyed. So what in the world is he talking about? 
It gives us a hint, actually, at the very beginning of the letter. So we have for this, go all the way back to the beginning and see who he's writing to. And he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces, etc. And so this, through this entire letter, he has been looking at their position as Christians under the Roman Empire, as being in the same position as those who had been uh, Jews in exile in Babylon centuries earlier, and saying, here we are, under leadership that does not recognize our God, does not worship our God, does not serve our God, is not leading us in the ways of our God. What do we do? And that's what the whole thing has been about. And so when he says, I am now writing to you as, uh, I'm writing to you with Silas and Mark, and she who's in Babylon, this she is the church who's in Rome. This is where Peter is writing from, and those who are there, the church in Rome at the time. Why does he call it Babylon? Some say maybe because there was persecution going on, and maybe he didn't want to call Rome out specifically uh, for fear of what could happen. Maybe. But I think he's making a theological point. And what he's saying is the situation that you find yourselves in is not new. God has brought people through this same situation before, and now he's doing it again. And it may have a different name now. We may call it Rome, but it's the same thing. God is bringing his people through this kind of situation. So this is who he's writing. Now this is important to keep in mind as we look at the whole rest of this. What does it mean to be strong, firm, and steadfast? What does it mean to be that under that situation? Now, I hope you are already thinking not only in terms of Peter and ancient Rome, but also the situations we face on a daily basis. But here's what he says. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is a great verse. One that we can hold on to in the midst of all kinds of worries and stresses and anxieties. Knowing that we are not alone. But that there is a God who cares. But here's the thing. This, in uh, some Bibles, has been split up. It's a separate verse all on its own. It's a separate sentence all on its own. In Greek, it's actually just the second half of the sentence before it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you in, up in due time. And it actually says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In other words, casting your anxiety on him is a part of our humbling ourselves before God. Why is that? Here's why. Through this whole passage, one of the things that we always forget, but so helpful to remember, that while we want to be strong and mighty warriors, the Bible continually calls us sheep. We are sheep. He is the shepherd. And when we remember that, then it makes sense that we would cast our anxiety on him. And when you look at what comes next, we have be alert and a sober, sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You say, well, if I didn't have anxiety before, I sure do now. Thanks a lot, Peter. But that's the whole point. That he's saying, 
You're not supposed to have anxiety that you're carrying yourself. You're supposed to hand those off to your shepherd. He's the one who's taking care of you. Let him. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you just go through life, well, I don't care. Whatever happens, happens. Just because there really are dangers out there, and you need to be aware of them. You need to be watching out for them. But you don't need to get stressed out about them. You don't need to carry the anxieties and the worries that go along. Think about this. Do you remember when David was going up against Goliath, and he was kind of making his case to Saul? Remember what he says? Saul's saying, you're a kid. You're not going to be able to go up against a giant. You're not a warrior. You're not uh, trained in battle. He says, right. I'm a shepherd. And I have taken care of my sheep by fighting off the lions and the bears that have come to attack them. All right, now hear this again. Peter reminds us, there is someone who's out there to devour us like a lion devouring sheep. It is not the sheep's job to fight the lion. It is the sheep's job to cry out to the shepherd and let the shepherd fight the lion. But the sheep also doesn't have to run away because they know that the shepherd is there to protect them. This is what he's, what Peter is saying. Stand firm. And by the way, if you think I'm just coming up with this shepherd stuff out of thin air, it's actually the first half of this chapter is all about being shepherd and sheep under uh, under the great shepherd. And so he says we stand, we resist him, and we stand firm. Because we know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And by the way, what is it that we are being, uh, how is it that the devil is trying to devour us? The word used here is actually means like the accuser, slanderer, the one who brings up charges against us and against God, who either says to us, you are not good enough, you are not worthy to be saved, you have, you know, why, would you, why do you think that God would ever love you? Those kinds of things. It all goes straight back to the same lie that was told in the Garden of Eden when God had provided exactly what they needed. He had taken care of them, given them everything they needed. What is it that David says in his great shepherd psalm? He begins it with, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. This is the situation Adam and Eve were in. They lack nothing. And yet the serpent comes to them and says, Did God really say that you shouldn't have? You shouldn't eat from this tree? And the seed of doubt is fine. Does God really care? Is he really providing everything that I need? Is he who I thought he was? And the seed of doubt is fine. This is the same thing that happens today. The lion uh, deceiver, the accuser, the slanderer, comes around and he slanders us ourselves. He slanders God to us. And the question is, will we believe the lies? That's always been the question. He says, here's how we resist him. We stand firm in the faith. In other words, no matter what it is, we continue to trust in God. So for this, we have to go back to Jesus, of course. And you remember, in Matthew 13, he says, yes, Matthew 13, where uh, Jesus tells uh, one of my favorite parables. They're all good, though. Read them all. 
Um, <laughs> the parable of the four soils. And it says in my Bible, the parable of the sower. But it has four different soils. And the seed, if the sower sows the seed on all the soils, but it comes up differently everywhere, depending on where it lands. And two of them, one doesn't spring up at all, the other springs and flourishes, but there are two of them in the middle. The one that falls on the stony ground and the one that falls among the thorns. And both of those seem like they're going to grow up, but they don't. And the reason why, different in both cases, but the same result. And Jesus explains it. He says, um, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. In other words, there were two dangers that both had the same result. Different dangers, same result. The worries, the people of wealth, on the one hand, or the dangers and persecutions on the other hand. Peter takes these same two things, and he says there's a the danger you have of the devil that's prowling around like a lion trying to devour someone. Watch out. But on the other hand, he says, he's got these anxieties and the worries of this sort of thing. Don't let those destroy you either. Don't let the anxieties of life, the worries of this life, or the deceitfulness of wealth cause you to fall away. Remember when Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And I love this line. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Isn't that great? You are worth more than many sparrows. Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate that one. But it is such a great thing when you understand it in the context of what he's saying. He says, your heavenly Father even cares for the sparrows, and you are worth many sparrows. This is why he's also able to say in Matthew 6, in teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, why do you run after the same kind of things that the pagans run after? Why do you worry about the same kind of things that the pagans worry about? Don't you understand the reason that they run after those things, the reason they're worried about those things, is because they think it's all up to them. They think they are responsible for having to take care of everything on their own. And so they carry worry and they carry anxiety, and they're constantly running, running, running after more and more and more. But if you understand that the God who cares for the birds of the air, if you understand that the God who cares for the flowers of the field cares for you, you're worth more than many sparrows, remember? Don't you know he's going to care for you? And if you actually trust in God this way, then what happens to the anxiety? What happens to the fear? What Peter tells us is what happens is 
as we humble ourselves, understanding we are the sheep. He is the shepherd. We take all of that anxiety that builds up in us, and he says, cast it on him. Now, this is not, by the way, the same kind of casting that you do with um, a fishing rod, where you cast it away, but you still keep the string attached, so you can reel it back to you and worry about it again. This is the casting it far away, where it's not on you. It's not attached. It's not yours to be concerned with. And you let him take care of you. Being alert, but standing firm in the faith. And this is where we then come back to the strong, firm, and steadfast. Because then the God of all grace, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And what Peter is telling us here is the focus is always on him. It's not on us. And he tells us what he's going to do for us and in us and through us. But the focus is still on him. He's the God of all grace. He's the one who called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And he says, no, we will have suffered for a little while. It won't last. And all the sufferings we face here and now, all the persecutions we face as Christians, the persecutions being faced even now throughout the world, won't last. But our relationship with God will. On forever. And he says, and as God will himself restore you. This is where that strong, firm, and steadfast comes in. That we will be restored by God. All the broken places will be healed. This is the same word, by the way, that was used when Jesus came upon uh, the disciples as they were still fishermen and they were sitting on the shore mending the nets. It's that same word. They had been used, those nets had been used and they had been stretched, and they had been broken, and they had been damaged, and the disciples were sitting there, and they're fixing them all up, and they're good as new. And he says, this is what God is going to do with you. So don't think that the things that we are uh, going through now are going to last forever. They won't. As Tim Keller has said many, many times, that one day, all of the sad things in life will come untrue. This is what Peter's talking about. All the sad things will come untrue. All the broken places will be healed. We will be restored. And at that point, that is how we will become strong, firm, and steadfast. Because our trust in God will be complete. Because our understanding of who he is and what he's done will be so much greater than it is right now. And the temptations that we face right now to fall away or to be distracted, to run, screaming like, sheep being scared by a lion. All those temptations will be gone. Because we will see him for who he is and what he has done for us. He also puts it into context here when he says uh, that we'll suffer a little while. I heard a sermon this week where um, preaching talking saying that uh, Jesus on the cross 
the suffering that he went through there, not just the physical suffering, that separation from God that he faced, was of such an infinitely greater suffering than anything we could ever go through. He said that all of our sufferings, if by comparison, would be like mosquito bites compared to what he faced. I think that's a helpful way to put it in perspective. I'm sure at this point in the summer, many of us have mosquito bites. And there's a certain amount of suffering that goes on there. But what Peter is telling us is that the suffering that we face now, again, like Paul tells us in Romans 8, nothing to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in Christ Jesus. He is our shepherd. We are the sheep. We humble ourselves. We cast our anxiety and our cares on him, knowing that he cares for us. And we trust him 